The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter and the 11th verse. The 11th verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Now, those of us who meet regularly here have been considering the message of this 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah for a number of Sunday evenings. And we have been doing so because we have shown to us here so clearly the terrible, devastating effects upon the human race of sin and evil. That is the whole point of the prophet's message. He was sent to the children of Israel at a time of terrible crisis in their lives. Things couldn't very well have been much worse. But there was worse to follow unless they repented. So God sent this servant of his, as he had sent so many servants before him, with a message to these people, to face the facts ere it was too late. And what the message is in its essence is to put before them the two possibilities, the only two possibilities, which are always there before us. The possibility of either being blessed by God or else the other dread possibility of cursing. This was put to the children of Israel in order that they might see that all their troubles arose from the fact that they had wandered away from God. They couldn't see that. They didn't believe that, but that nevertheless was the fact, and that was the truth. And the prophet therefore is sent to them with this burning message, appealing to them, ere it be too late, to repent and to return to God. And such is the love and mercy of God that he puts the message to us simply, plainly, directly, in pictures, using illustrations, so plainly that all of us will be left without any excuse if at the end we find ourselves under God's wrath and under God's curse. Now, the essence of the message is this, that man is in his present predicament because of the deceitfulness of sin. Now, we've seen that here in this notable verse, the ninth verse, where we are told the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, that is something that is often said in the Bible about sin. You noticed it in that reading just now from the third chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. It is the deceitfulness of sin that always causes the trouble. You see, the author of that epistle writing to those people, says, Now, don't, uh, don't be misled as your forefathers were in the wilderness. They had a marvelous opportunity. God had called them and had delivered them out of the captivity and the bondage of Egypt. And he was leading them to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. But very few of the original people who came out of Egypt actually went into Canaan. Why? Well, the answer is, he said, they were deceived. It was because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is something that deceives us. And we have already considered some of the ways in which it does so. Now I say this is a constantly recurring theme in the whole of the Bible. Take for instance the way the Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Corinthians in his second epistle and in the 11th chapter. He talks about the serpent at the beginning beguiling Eve. It's the same thing, beguiling. 
appearing as a would-be friend, appearing most ingratiating, most pleasant, most able, most affable, uh, out to help, out to be a great friend, beguiled Eve, uh, says the Apostle Paul. In other words, deceived her, uh, persuaded her uh, to do something that was wrong without her realizing what was happening. Now, that is something, then, I say, that is constantly emphasized in the Scriptures, the deceitfulness of sin. But there is another term that is used very frequently in the Scriptures with regard to sin. And the second one is folly, foolishness. The sinner, according to the Bible, is above everything else a fool. Nothing less than a fool. And here again is something I say that you will find running right through the Scripture. The Bible, of course, is a book which God has given to us in order to teach us and to instruct us. There is nothing which is so foolish as to think of the Bible as a book that is remote from life, that's got nothing to tell us and nothing to help us uh, as we struggle daily with life in this world as it is. The people who think that the Bible is a, a book which is only of interest to those who've got nothing better to do or who are so ignorant that they don't know great literature and so on, oh, what terrible ignorance that is. There is no more practical book in the world than this. It's a book about life. It's a book about living. That's why it's got so much history. That's why it tells us so much about wars and births and marriages and deaths and the trials and troubles of individuals and of nations. It's a book of life. Written about men and women who are in this world and trying to live, written to such people in order to help them. And this is its great message. That all our troubles, I say again, are due to sin. And what sin does to us is to make us unutterably foolish. It not only uh, deceives us, but it fools us. And it makes fools of us. And here, you see, in this verse that we're looking at tonight, we have the two ideas brought together. In this one verse, the two main things that the Bible has to tell us about sin are combined together in one picture. Now, you notice that it's put in the form of an analogy or an illustration. As, in the same way as, the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not. So, as so, he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end shall be a fool. Now, the authorities are in great trouble over this illustration about the partridge. The text isn't too clear, so we can't tell exactly what it really means. They've got two main ideas about it. Uh, some say that it means that uh, the partridge takes eggs out of other nests and then puts them in her own nest and tries to hatch them. Others say no, that what it really means is this, that the partridge has a habit of uh, taking the uh, young birds that have just been hatched out of the eggs of other birds and uh, takes them to herself and uh, tries to bring them up as her family. And then, of course, the time comes when the bird has grown to a stage, it hears the call of its rightful mother and the type to which it belongs and runs away from the partridge. The partridge thought that it was being very clever. It was, uh, as it were, having an offspring with a minimum amount of effort. Whether it was collecting eggs from another nest or taking the young birds from another nest, the partridge thought it had done something very wonderful, that it had got this wonderful family without the other. But suddenly, the other one calls and away they run, and the poor partridge is left without a family at all. Well, we can't tell, I say, which of the two uh, explanations is correct. It seems that uh, partridges in this country are not guilty of either practice. However, uh, I'm no more interested probably in that than you are. But uh, it's quite clear that there is some basis, some basis uh, to this idea that is here used by the prophet. There was some habit uh, of these birds uh, which led him to use this as an illustration. But as I say, whatever the precise meaning, 
the lesson and the message is perfectly clear and distinct. The message is that any man, all men as sinners, are guilty of precisely the same thing. Now, you notice that the prophet puts it in particular in terms of riches, in terms of getting wealth. So, he says, he that getteth riches, wealth, but not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. Now then, here I say our two ideas are blended together. And uh, what the prophet does is to take just one illustration, a very common one. But it doesn't only apply to this question of wealth. It applies to anything else on which a man sets his heart in the same way. Indeed, it is uh, a general denunciation, as I've indicated, of sin as a whole, which manifests itself so commonly in this very matter of wealth. But wealth isn't the only, this coveting of wealth is not the only sin. This uh, amassing wealth by an illegitimate method isn't the only sin. Anything that man does according to that principle applies in exactly the same way. In these ancient times, wealth was one of the commonest forms which sin took, and it's equally true today. Theft, robbery, keeping money, you see, which doesn't belong to you, that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing that the prophet was using as his primarily, primary illustration. But I say what matters is the great principle of this whole attitude towards life. And therefore, let me put it to you in the form of a number of principles. There are two main lessons, it seems to me, taught us here. The first is that we must understand something of the ways in which men deceives himself. Now, we've already dealt with that in general in the ninth verse. I'm going to deal with it now in particular as it is put before us in this eleventh verse. How does man deceive himself? Well, the commonest way of all is that he deceives himself with regard to his own wisdom. With regard to his own ability. With regard to his own understanding. I don't think I need hesitate in asserting that this is the essential thing in sin. I say it's the essential thing in sin for this reason, that it was the precise form in which the devil tempted Adam and Eve at the very beginning. He, with all his cleverness and his subtlety, knew that the point at which he was most likely to persuade men to agree with him rather than with God was along the line of the intellect, the mind. And therefore, you see, he came to them and he said, Now look here. Do you notice, he says, that God has told you not to eat in particular of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't you see what it means? He says, God is insulting you. God is withholding this knowledge from you. God is insulting your intellects, your minds, your understanding. And that was the thing that produced men's downfall. I have no doubt that the sin of sins is intellectual pride. It has been the cause of men's trouble from the very beginning, and it continues the same until this very night. Man is always confident of his own intellect and his own power. He always holds the view that he really has nothing to do but to sit down and to think and to work things out, and that as the result of so doing, he can master any problem, he can solve all difficulties, and he can live life as it should be lived, and he can make the world what he would like it to be. Now, I mustn't weary you with this. I'm constantly referring to it because it seems to me to be particularly the sin of the 20th century. It began, of course, in the last century. 
and we have received the legacy, and it is continuing. Men, about the middle of the last century, began to develop this idea. It can be put in a, in a, in a nutshell, as it were, if I put it like this. In general, until then, man was aware of his smallness and his inability, and he came to the Bible as God's word in order to receive guidance. He believed it was inspired, that it was a revelation of God and his thought and his ideas about life. But about that time, men began to reject it. And he put up in its place what is called philosophy. And what's philosophy? Well, philosophy simply means this. It is man's claim that by his own thought and his reasoning and his analysis and his synthesis, he can arrive at a complete knowledge about life. It is man's assertion that he is self-sufficient that he's got the brain and the intellectual capacity to understand everything, and that even God himself is someone whom he is capable of analyzing and dissecting. Man asserts his own mind and his own brain. That's the real meaning of philosophy. And when you put philosophy in the first position, you are asserting your intellectual self-sufficiency. And surely... That is the essential trouble with men. Let me put it to you in this form. Why is it that the whole world tonight, in view of the world situation, and in view of all that is so true of life, why is it that the whole world isn't on its knees at this moment, praying to God and pleading with him to have mercy and to show us the way out of our difficulty? There's only one answer. It is that man is confident still that he is capable of dealing with the situation. He feels that to go down on his knees and to ask God for help is insulting to man. He feels that he can do it himself, that his own mind, I say, is sufficiently great. That is always the essential trouble with men. Confident in his own ideas, in his own thoughts, in his own proposals and in his own scheme. Now, that's the thing that Jeremiah, you see, has got in his mind. He's picturing to us a man. Uh, this man uh, who getteth riches, but not by right. Uh, what, what, what's the truth about this man? Well, here's a man, obviously, who thinks that he's rather clever. You see, he sees certain people sweating and laboring, and he says, what fools. There's no need to do that. I know how to do it. And he does it in his way. The first thing that he proclaims is that he's a very clever man. It's very obvious in the case of a man who does this with regard to wealth, isn't it? But how tragically blind we all are to see that it's equally true of all of us with regard to life and living. Never has man thought so highly of himself and his own cleverness and his own ability as he does today. The average man who's not a Christian feels rather sorry for those of us who are Christian. My friends, you know full well that there are millions of people in the world tonight who would think that all of us in this building at this moment are fools. That we should still be meeting in a place of worship and listening to an exposition of the Bible and singing hymns and praying to God. They say, what, still doing that? They're much too clever to do that. You see, like this man, like the partridge, man in sin thinks that he's clever. He's got great confidence in his own cleverness. And man, I say tonight, if he is not a Christian, is a man who believes that he's so clever that he can solve all his problems, master all his difficulties, and make of himself and of life in this world what he wants it to be. That's the first thing I find here. Yes, but there's a second thing. Man not only deceives himself with regard to his own cleverness and his own ability, he tends also to deceive himself always in this way, that he feels that he can ignore the law and that he can break the rules with impunity. 
Now we are carrying two ideas in our minds, aren't we? That man in sin is deceived and also a fool. And I'm trying to show you how the two elements come out in this second way. That man thinks that he can ignore all the rules and break all the laws and still, to use the modern phrase, get away with it. That's what the partridge thought, wasn't it? Take those eggs, take those young, wonderful, clever, be all right. What had she forgotten? She had forgotten the instinct in the little animals, in the little birds. They hear the cry of the real parent, and off they run. The partridge was very clever, yes, but he'd forgotten the law of nature. The law of kind. The law of species and all the rest of it. There is this affinity, and it will assert itself. But the partridge ignored that, and believed, of course, that it could be done quite safely, and that that she, the partridge, could get away with it. Well now, man, according to the prophet and according to the Bible everywhere, is guilty of the same thing. Here is a man, you see, who getteth riches, becomes enormously wealthy, but not by right. He's broken the rules, he's broken the law. Ah, but he's a clever fellow, and where others can't do it, he can do it, and he's sure he can do it, and off he goes and tries to do it. But that is true of every one of us, according to the Bible. We will persist in thinking that we can do things in our own way, that we can disobey God, that we can ignore his holy laws, that we can spit upon the sanctities and still everything will be all right with us. Now let me put it in a more explicit form by putting it like this. There's a statement here in the Old Testament that puts it like this. It says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. But does mankind believe that? If mankind believed that, nobody would ever sin again. You see, what we all say is this. Oh, well, of course, that man got into trouble. I shan't get into trouble. Of course, he was a fool. He didn't know how to do it. I know. The way of the transgressor is hard. Well, of course, it may have been at one time, but it's no longer like that. We've advanced since then, and we know so much more, and so on. I can do it. Uh, There's no risk as far as I'm concerned. The way of the transgressor is hard, says the rule. I say not a bit of it. I know how to do it in such a way that I shall not suffer as the result of doing it. You see, the law is there, but I take no notice of the law. Getteth riches, but not by right. He crashes through the laws and breaks all the sanctities and still is assured that there'll be no trouble as far as he is concerned. Or let me give you another example. There's a great fundamental law in life, says the Bible, and it says it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and goes on repeating it. What a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's a law. Put in wheat, wheat will come up. Put in oats, it'll be oats. What a man soweth, that also shall he reap. Now this is an absolute law. There's no variation at all. It is one of those eternal laws of nature that God has put there. But you see, this kind of man ignores that. He's not interested in this instinct in the birds, this affinity, this call of like to like, this family tie. He's not interested in these laws in nature in any form. He's convinced that he can manipulate it all and still be all right. Isn't this the whole explanation of all misery and unhappiness in the world this evening? What a man soweth. That shall he also reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you shall reap of the Spirit everlasting life. If you sow to the flesh, you shall reap of the flesh corruption. It's an absolute law. But I say men in sin doesn't believe that. 
We are confronted by the evidence not only in the Bible, but you get it in the whole story of the human race. Read the biographies. Read your history books, your secular history books. And you will find that these laws that govern life, these rules that govern the conduct of humanity, they are absolutes. And though very clever men have stood up against them and have tried to break them, in the, last, in the last analysis, they all are proofs of the fact that what the Bible says is absolutely true, without any exception at all. But man doesn't recognize that, does he? He refuses to believe that he's been made in the image of God. He refuses to believe that God has put certain laws in his nature and that unless he obeys them, he's going to suffer. He laughs at them all. He does it in every respect. He does it physically. You see, there are men who think that they are strong enough to play fast and loose with the laws of health. I've known such men. They've laughed at them. They've defied them. They've said that they're so strong that they need pay no attention to these things. But they've lived to see their folly. If you burn both ends of the candle, it won't last long. If you spend your day in making money and your night and into the small hours of the morning in spending it again on your lusts and passions, you'll pay for it. Your blood pressure will go up. Your arteries will harden. It's no use talking to me about your vitality and how perhaps you've got some drugs that you can take that keep you going. All right, live on your drugs. But the whole time, a secret record's being kept and the result is being recorded and you'll know it eventually. These are absolute laws. And they're true above everywhere in the spiritual realm. God has made men for himself. And he has told us so plainly, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And yet wicked people are still convinced they can find peace and happiness and joy. That's why they plunge into sin. They've read the story of others. They see the account of them in the newspapers. The man starts drinking. He says, ah, somebody tells him, be careful, you may end in a drunkard's grave. Not I, he says. I can do it. We all think that we are the exception. That we can afford to break the rules. He getteth riches, but not by right. Like the partridge, he disobeys the laws of nature and thinks it's going to be a success. Well, which brings me to my third point, which I put in this form. That man in this way believes that he is looking after himself and his own highest and his best interests. And nowhere are the elements of deceit and folly seen so clearly than at this very point. The partridge does all that, as I've indicated to you, thinking it's doing the best for itself. And so does men in sin. No man sets out to be miserable or to be unhappy. Everybody is seeking happiness and peace and joy. And this is the supreme folly and tragedy of men tonight. That men and women, by turning their backs upon God, by spitting upon his laws, by trampling upon the sanctities, are rarely convinced and persuade themselves that they're serving their own highest and best interests. That they're really doing a good thing for themselves. That's why the man, you see, takes money, but not according to righteousness. He thinks he's doing a very good thing for himself. Get rich quickly. Get rich without all the effort and the sweat and the labor. Do it in a subtle way. Use your mind and your brain. Don't be a fool and do it in the ordinary way. He's thinking he's doing a marvelous thing for himself. But you see what the Bible has to say about it all. You see how man is proclaiming his folly in doing this very thing. What an idea he has of himself. Look at this sort of man who gets rich uh, uh, quickly, but not by right. You see what he tells us about his estimate of himself and his estimate of life? To him that he's a thief and a robber and a liar is nothing. 
Character doesn't count. It's money that counts. If I have become a multimillionaire as the result of my dishonesty, well, it's wonderful. The fact I've lost my character is to a man like that nothing at all. It's money that counts. And the power that money gives. And the ability to buy things with money. That's his estimate of a man, you see. That's his estimate of life and nobility and character. And he thinks he's clever. He thinks he's wonderful. He thinks he's paying himself a great compliment. He pats himself on the back. He says, marvelous. You've done gloriously. What a success you are in life. Or think of it, if you like, in terms of pleasure. And people who live for pleasure. And what they call happiness and joy. I don't read Sunday newspapers, but sometimes they're put so prominently before you that you can't help seeing them. I gather that a man's going to write an account of his life story. I saw a title, he puts profession before... He put love before profession or something. How we sentimentalize about these things. Happiness is put before honor today. And as long as you can find a certain amount of happiness, says the modern men, honor doesn't count. Vows and pledges don't matter. What you may have said solemnly in a church service, what's it matter? Happiness, I'm entitled to it. My joy, I don't care how much other people suffer. Perhaps my little children, doesn't matter. It's what I want. Honor. It's not considered. That's what modern man is proclaiming in sin, you see. He thinks he's praising himself, doing wonderfully for himself. Making a great life for himself. In these, in this way, by trampling across the law and spitting upon the sanctity. But he displays this tragic. This foul view of life and qualities and sanctities, the noblest things that belong to man. This kind of man, man in sin, who thinks he's so marvelous and so able and so successful, is without knowing it insulting himself. He's deceiving himself. He's making a fool of himself. Well, let me say a word about that second principle. How does man's folly and self-deceit manifest itself? Well, in this way. You notice the way it's put here. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. What a terrible commentary on life, but how terribly true. How does he thus show that he's a fool? Well, in this way. What he has done and what he's planned always disappoints him and invariably fails to give real satisfaction. Like that young offspring that runs away from this partridge at the call of its lawful parent, so this man finds that all he thinks he's got for himself suddenly leaves him in the midst of his days. I take that to mean what I'm saying that it never really gives satisfaction. That when you think you've just arrived at that point, when you're going to enjoy it all so marvelously, it somehow doesn't seem to turn out like that. Oh, I could illustrate this to you endlessly. There are some men who've lived in this world to satisfy their own ambition, to get on in politics or to get on in a profession or something like that. They've been ambitious men. And if only they've set their hearts upon it. I've rarely known such a person rarely satisfied. There's always a fly in the ointment. Something always seems to go wrong. They've broken the rules. They've sacrificed honor. They may have been dishonest. They may have lost their characters. They haven't been found out and they're very pleased about that. But now as the result of all this they think they've got it. But have they got it? Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. There are rivals, there is jealousy and envy. 
And somehow or another, when you think you've got enough money to buy your pleasures, you can't buy it with money. There are millionaires who are unhappy and very envious of certain poor Christians who've got peace and joy and love and happiness in their hearts and who can sleep at night without drugs. No, no. You see, the trouble with men is that he doesn't know himself. He doesn't know his own greatness. Men cannot be satisfied with money. Men can't be satisfied with things. A man can't live by bread alone. He can't live by bread and drink and money and wealth and position and the gratification of his passions and his lusts. You know, man simply cannot. He gets tired of it. And men who have lived a life of sin are like extinct volcanoes, waiting for something further to stimulate them. They've exhausted themselves. They can't find satisfaction. I'm giving you facts. The most miserable people in the world at this moment are people who've lived for pleasure and have now become too old or too poor to have it in the way they wanted or can no longer react to its stimulus. You see, the pleasure goes in the midst of the days, as it were. Oh, Jeremiah's already put it very perfectly in the second chapter of this prophecy. He says that all men who live without God and who live by their wits and their own cleverness and who think that they can plan perfect happiness for themselves, they dig out systems for themselves. And when they need them most of all, they find that they are but broken systems. And they have to admit at last, I've tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, their waters fail. They always do. But what a tragedy it is that men should thus deceive himself, that he should be such a fool. My dear friend, you are made on the image of God. And nothing less than God himself can finally satisfy or to put it in the second form, I'll put it like this. Such a man always finds himself at the end without anything at all. He hadn't realized that face to face with certain inevitable eventualities, that all the things he'd lived for are of no value whatsoever. Does your money help you when your heart is broken? Would the wealth of the universe compensate you for the death of a loved one? No, no. Face to face with the biggest events in life, birth and death, marriage and all these things, these things that men outside Christ live for, they're of no value. And that's what this man discovers at the end. When you find yourself old and your faculties failing, or when even if you're young, you suddenly have some terrible illness, some acute infection or some growth, when you find yourself lying on your deathbed, what's the value of money? What's the value of pleasure? Do you think that on your deathbed you'll ask somebody to put on the dance band for you? It'll mock you. It'll jeer at you. It'll laugh in your face. Take all the things the world lives for. It's gossip. It's scandal. It's sex mania. Will you want all that on your deathbed, you think? No, no. Like this ill-gotten wealth. It leaves you and vanishes just when you need it most of all. And at the end, you find you've got nothing. Isn't that the folly and the tragedy of men? Isn't it some awful deceit that leads to that? You see, that's why he emphasizes this. That's why that man in the epistle to the Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Think of a man who's lived 70 years in this world, ignoring God altogether and all the sanctities, living by his wits according to the mind of the world, and living for these things that are supposed to be so marvelous. Perhaps he's had great notoriety in the press, and the world says a great man, 
And there he is at the end. With all the things for which he is living. Absolutely useless. As that man puts it in that 49th Psalm. Which I read to you at the beginning. He can't take them with him. He can't take his money. His great estates. His great name. They don't count in the next world. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It's no use at the bar of judgment saying, look at my bank balance. How marvelously I did while I was there. Look at the happiness. Look at the thrill. What a wonderful figure I cut in society. The categories are not recognized in the spiritual realm. They're refuse. They're dung. They're worthless and useless. The man finds himself, you see, at the end with nothing. Yes, or to put it positively as I close. But this clever man who thought that he had so cleverly and in such a subtle manner by breaking the laws and the rules, uh, this clever man who thought he'd made such perfect provision for himself, what he really finds at the end is that he's made no provision whatsoever for himself. He's naked. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. At the end, you're as stripped as you were at the beginning. All you've amassed is taken off you, and your naked soul goes back to stand before its maker. The poor man finds that he's made no provision at all. They shall leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end, he shall be a fool. The man who was so wise, so far-sighted, so long-seeing, so worldly wise, looking after himself always. What he's neglected above everything else is himself, his soul. He's made no provision for it whatsoever. He's no provision for eternity. He's no provision for answering God's law and God's absolute demands. He's no provision for clothing himself in the presence of that holy God. Deceitfulness. Unutterable folly. What can be done with such a man? My dear friends, the thing that makes this gospel so marvelous and so wonderful and that should move us all to the depths of our being is this, that though we have all, like Saul, the king of Israel of old, played the fool and in our folly have pitted our little selves against God and have defied him and have broken his laws and have asserted our ideas against him. Though we've done all that and deserve nothing but to reap the consequences of our own folly to all eternity, God in his infinite love and kindness and compassion is prepared to forgive us if we but acknowledge and confess our folly and our utter deceitfulness. If we see it and if we go to him and confess it, which is repentance, if we see that our attitude towards God has been wrong over and above our actions, and if we go and cast ourselves unreservedly upon his love and mercy and compassion, do you know what he'll tell you? He will tell you that before you ever did that, he had looked upon you. He'd seen your arrogance, your pride, your folly. But he had said, this is due to sin, this is due to evil. They're blind, they don't know. And he has contrived a way for delivering you. God so loved the world. The world that has done the very things about which I've been speaking. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank God, God is the lawgiver, you see. He doesn't break his own laws, he can act above them. We've broken his laws, and the law is what a man soweth that shall he also reap. I've sinned, therefore I must die and be damned. But God has found another way. His Son has come and has borne my doom, my damnation, and has died for me. So God gives me new life, pardons me, forgives me, reconciles me to himself, gives me this new principle, fills me with a new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and opens out to me a glorious harvest, a spiritual harvest of praise and of glory in eternity. Very well, I end by putting it in this form. You can't improve upon the Apostle Paul. He always puts it perfectly and always has the last word. He puts it like this. If any man, he says, willeth to be wise in this world, and that's what we all want, isn't it? We all, by nature, as I've said, want to be wise in this world. We want to do the best for ourselves. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. What's he mean by that? Well, he means this. He's been saying in that first epistle to the Corinthians, from which I've just quoted in the third chapter, He's already been saying in that epistle that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's way of salvation by sending his son into the world and by putting our sins on him and punishing them in him that he may forgive us, that that to the Greeks is foolishness. The Greeks said, what unutterable folly. You can't have two natures in one person. You can't put the sins of another man on another and punish him. It's unjust. That's folly, says the Greek. The cross of Christ and its preaching to the Greek was utter foolishness, unutterable folly. Men who believe it, they said, are fools. Very well, says Paul. If you really want to be wise in this world, become a fool. Become as a little child. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and say, I don't know. I see that I've been a fool. I've trusted to a mind that isn't big enough. The minds of the greatest philosophers were not enough, so how could my be? I see my folly. I don't care what men may say. They may say I've gone soft, that I've become a lunatic, that I've become as a child. I am a child. I don't know. And I go to God empty-handed. And as a little child, I confess my folly, my deceitfulness, my sin. And I believe God's word. I don't understand it because it's so great. But I believe it when it tells me that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom of God and the power of God. I'll submit myself to it. I'll receive it and accept it. That's the answer. Are you alive to these things, my friend? Read again when you go home the 49th Psalm. Realize that the man who trusts to himself is a fool and he'll know it at the end. Realize it now and therefore repent and believe the gospel. Become a fool in the eyes of the world that you may be wise in the sight of God by accepting his wisdom which is Jesus Christ and him crucified.
If you've got the solid joys and the lasting treasure, it is all offered you freely in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Accept it. Receive it. O oh God, we pray thee that we all may be made wise unto salvation. O oh God, make plain thy word and save the people. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain life and earthly pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.